Welcome to the Less True podcast presented by Gulf Food, the largest annual FMB sourcing event in the world. I'm your host, Jeraria Hersey, bringing you compelling stories and insights to a wide range of topics in the food and drinks industry. From farming, behind the scenes, to the culinary world, and to foods we simply love to chew on. In this podcast series, we speak to people, brands, and businesses across the food and drinks spectrum to find out more about why they do what they do and how, in their own way, they're championing change and shifting the future of food and drink. Trust me, there's so much more. So listen to the Less True podcast on our website, gulffood.com, and subscribe to our newsletter for the latest updates in food. Welcome to season two of the Let's Chew podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jeraria Hersey. So today we're diving into the fascinating intersection of technology and sustainability with Erin Grover. She is a distinguished member of the World Economic Forum's Crypto Sustainability Coalition. Erin's expertise lies in advising on emerging technologies for authentic carbon impact, food security, and regenerative supply chain transparency. She has a background spanning with international services with organizations like the United Nations, and she brings a wealth of experience to the table. So join us as we explore the innovative ways Erin is leveraging technology to drive sustainability practices across the entire supply chain. And uh, we're gonna be talking about agriculture to climate change and digital assets. Welcome to the show, Erin. I hope you are doing great today. And thank you so much for joining us on the Let's Chew podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure. So let's just get started. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey and how you found yourself working at the intersection of technology and sustainability in the world of food. Okay. So I have spent the past 20 years building to this moment. And at different times, it didn't seem like it was coherent or there was a thread, but looking back, there definitely is. So I started out spending my uh, 20s working for the UN and different NGOs and places like Afghanistan, uh, Nepal, East Timor, Cambodia. And at the beginning of that period, I was actually living with a village of farmers in the Himalayas for about a year. Uh, in Nepal. Um, Life just put me there. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, at the time, I didn't really think it would be the driving inspiration for my career, but it is now because once you live with a village of farmers. Yeah, automatically. And, you know, like, I don't know their struggles well enough because I'm not them, but I've seen it from the front row. Um, understanding how hard it is, how backbreaking it is, especially when you're a smallholder farmer and not doing industrial farming. Okay. Right? So um, these people were very good to me and took me in like their family. So in my career since then, I've always been wondering, like, how can I give back to communities like theirs? And um, yeah, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for farmers. Um, And pretty much... I ended up working for NGOs for 10 years, but then 
in my 30s, like I fell into blockchain technology. And when I first understood blockchain technology, um, my first thought was like, wow, this can provide transparency in the NGO world for proof of work, for distribution of funds. Um, You know, like the NGO world like has its issues. And one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, people don't know if the funds actually get to the place like you know like during different tragedies like Haiti or Nepal like no one really knew if the funds got there or not and there's still reports of that not happening right so with blockchain technology you can show that the funds actually get to the people who need it the most so um so yeah when I understood that I was like wow like that's powerful. And one day I would love to take that technology and apply it to situations I saw in my twenties, right. in a new way. Yes. So anyway, um, I, I've been working with blockchain technology and now AI, uh, between a number of spaces in sustainability, but they're all around smallholder farmers and food. Right. So, um, I guess, um, you know, over the past several years, like three, four years, I've been working on different case studies for smallholder farmers using these technologies uh, between Africa and India, especially. And um, yeah, it's really exciting because it's brought me to the intersection of food security and uh, climate solutions. Okay. So I just want to know more about how you're aiding those smallholder farmers and if you can give some of the case studies that you've just mentioned that you can get a better idea of your kind of like your scope of work and how it's impacting and being very helpful for the smallholder. Sure. So I originally learned about one of the world's first case studies um, that was set up by a woman named Javier Levi uh, that actually put smallholder farmers in Haiti onto blockchain um, for transparency of the supply chain, but also for locking in their rates. Okay. So with blockchain technology, um, you can make sure that every point in the supply chain, every transaction, that the farmer at the back end gets a cut no matter what, because it's mm-hmm. locked in with the smart contract. Like no one can go back and change it. Change it, right? okay. So uh, her case study actually got mangoes to go from Haiti to America for the first time without going through the middlemen in the Dominican Republic. Now, her profits from that case study for the farmers went up between 700 and 900%. That inspiration took me um, to India, where I ended up advising a similar pilot that had Mm. like 20,000 farmers Mm. using blockchain every day for their market transactions. The same thing happened the profits went up between 700 to 900%. Okay. Which is hugely powerful because, you know, not only is it giving farmers more profit like they deserve, right? It's also solving this issue of like, you know, you hear people say, well, you know, farmers need subsidies. (laughs) They need government subsidies. Yeah. And you know what? If you actually pay farmers what they're supposed to get paid, they won't need those subsidies as much. True, I agree, yeah. Um, So that's one case study. And then in that process, I had a thought. I thought to myself, 
what about this thing called carbon, right? This is like three years ago. I'm like, there's this thing called soil carbon. There, there's a market called carbon and voluntary carbon credits. Yes. I don't know about it, but I need to figure it out because if we could compensate these smallholder farmers with an additional income stream for their carbon credits, that's even more powerful. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you, what is carbon and what is carbon credit for those of us who have no clue? Right. So carbon is, you know, (laughs) we hear about it a lot more now, I believe. I'm I'm in the bubble of that world, but I think more people are starting to finally hear about it. You get articles in Rolling Stone about it, New York Times, right? Um, But carbon is held in the soil, right? And when it's released into the air, it, it causes issues, right? It's, it's hurting the atmosphere. It's changing the weather patterns in the world. Mm-hmm. It's affecting um, farming, right? Because it's changing the weather. Yes. Um, and, and we only, you know, have so much carbon in the air that we can take while still being, being able to survive here, right? And right. more carbon in the air means more trapped greenhouse, greenhouse gases and we, we can't see the temperature of the planet go up much more and still sure. be sustainable, right? right. Um, so what happens is industrial farming kills the soil, right? Um, it, it's just not a natural process. It's not working with the land. And more carbon is released into the air because of industrial farming. Okay. Now, the practices of smallholder farmers actually keeps the soil or sorry, it keeps the carbon in the soil, right? Okay. Um, if done right. You'll sometimes hear a term called like regenerative farming, where you're, uh, if you're doing it right, you're continuously like ca- capturing carbon over time. So there's like regenerative farming, and then there's industrial farming. Yes. Now, um, we're, we're in the midst of a food crisis because we have a soil crisis. So about... Half the world's soil has been destroyed because of industrial farming. Oh. Half the world's soil. Yes. Okay. If we keep going at this rate, we're, we're not using regenerative practices and mostly industrial farming. We are going to have about, at this moment, we have about 60 years of healthy soil remaining for the whole planet. 60 years. 60 years. Okay. I'm more concerned about the soil crisis than I am about the carbon crisis and the climate crisis because at the same time, like, they're tied together. Mm. So if we're doing the healthy soil practices, regenerative farming, we'll capture the carbon, right? Yeah. But if we keep going at this rate, 60 years means only 60 harvests left for humanity. Wow, that's so alarming. Yeah. Okay. There are some links and movies I can send you later, right? And for your <laughs> listeners. Yes. But um, we have to change now. And it's like, look at Europe and the EU, right? They've, they're have they working on implementing um, regenerative reporting for supply chains. So that means that um, now like 5,000 global corporations that all import uh, goods like produce, coffee, mm-hmm. think cacao, things like that yes. to Europe, they have to start reporting, reporting everything about their supply chain, what's regenerative, what's not. And the, 
the track, we'll see if it happens, is, you know, over the coming years, like the EU's going the EU will tighten down and start to find companies that aren't using healthy regenerative practices within their supply chain. Okay. That's good. So what can we do? And what are you doing? Leading <laughs> the soil crisis. Oh God, I wish I had all the answers. I'm just <laughs> one person. Like it's... as a collective, what can we do? So apart from small holder farmers. I mean, you know, you have awareness, people like us getting together and talking and and spreading that awareness. Um, you know, I'm here in UAE and my hope is that I meet the right people and they listen. And I think this is one of the most open-minded governments in the world right now. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm here, I've been here for a couple of years now and I plan to stay here for a while and, and hopefully more, more ears are open to this message. Um, but it, it's going to take systemic change and it's going to take governments and major stakeholders in this world to, to change the system, right? But if you had the power to, what what would you like actually, like not a step-by-step, but things that need to change in the next few years, that's a must. What would they be? For me, in my world, like I work with a lot of impact investors mm. and a lot of companies that are doing good work, mm. right? So a part of it is making sure that those companies get funding. Okay. We, we have the technology and we have the talent to yeah. be doing this. They need more funding now. And okay. the, the money is here. Um, I think there's fear from investors because this is all new, these types of investments, but we have to now. We have 60 years yeah. of harvest, right? Um, so there's that. And we need to train people at the same time. Like we have the genius and the technology and the money, right? Um, but we need more people to be trained. Like what's happening right now, like schools, kids need to understand what's going on. And in this sector, this whole like impact climate, it, it's growing exponentially, right? And mm-hmm. it'll continue to do so as we see more global disasters and more fear, right? So preparing today's youth to be like the leaders in this field of sustainability it's super important, right? right. Um, and yeah, it's just um, regulation, regulation, like real regulation, right? Um, and then my hope is that, you know, some of the most powerful people and companies in the world um, really start to take action. Now, some of them are and some of them aren't. So we'll see how it goes. But yeah. we, we don't we don't have time to waste. And uh, one of my biggest complaints <laughs> <laughs> is that people just are not moving fast enough right now. So, okay. um, you know, I was talking to somebody too um, yesterday and uh, we have this topic that, that comes up a lot called SDGs, yes, right? Yeah. And we have these uh, global NGOs and uh, a lot of people are like, let's just do all the SDGs now. We get as many SDGs into our projects and our yeah. investments. And had the realization yesterday in this conversation, like we need to prioritize the SDGs that are going to be the most impactful. Cause there's like, mm. how many SDGs? Like 17, I forget the number, yeah. but like my 
belief down to my core now that I've been doing this work for a while mm. is once you start with that intersection of the smallholder farmers yes. for food and climate and community uh, restoration, community prosperity in the global south, that's going to address a lot of those SDGs anyway. So, so could we could we get priorities? <laughs> you know, get the so, priorities right. Yeah. Okay. And you speak about a lot about the block blockchain um, technologies. Can you tell us what are they like? What block blockchain are you using, and how is that helping the smallholder uh, farmers? Like, what technologies? Okay. So, what I advise on is the combination of blockchain technology with AI at the moment okay, and using that to enhance uh, practices in the field, right? So that combination of human and technology. And for people who don't understand what blockchain is, yes. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's crypto for one. The way I love to use blockchain has nothing to do with crypto. Okay. Right? So blockchain is an immutable ledger. Once the information is in the blockchain, once transactions happen, once there's data, no one can go back and change it. And change it okay. Because it is about consensus. It's every transaction has to be approved by every like supercomputer, right? There are all mm. these kind of supercomputers, we can say, just to keep it basic. Yeah. Thousands around the world that are holding the ledger of the blockchain that is public. All those computers have to be in agreement with every transaction. And it's not behind closed doors. Okay. It's incredibly powerful, right? Yes. Banks have been operating with ledgers behind closed doors, doors from the beginning. public, yeah. Look at what happened in 2008. This mm. is the problem, right? Bitcoin was born in 2008. <laughs> Interesting timing, yeah. right? So... Yeah, so take that and apply it to what I do with the farmers. So that means every transaction you can see it on the blockchain, okay? And all the supercomputers are having to agree on every transaction, right? And then these smart contracts, which are also immutable, no one can go back and change the rate for the farmer. Okay. So if the farmer gets like, five, ten percent of every transaction or whatever number, there's no one who can go back and change it. Yeah. And the farmer can see the whole chain of the transactions, but the farmer doesn't even have to worry about it because the smart contracts automate every transaction. It's like the second there's a transaction, the supply chain, the money instantly goes to the farmer. Okay. On top of that, there are two things. Um, the farmer or the supply chain with the blockchain, every point in the supply chain can be geotagged. So that means I'm a farmer in India. I enter my transaction from the farm. You can take a Google map reading and lock it into the blockchain. I know where it's coming from. Okay. And so every time there's a transaction, you can see it all the way to Dubai, right? So what's really cool about this is that no one can lie about where it's coming from. Easy traceability. So uh, I've talked about this before. There's this thing about saffron, for example. So 
apparently in the saffron world, uh, the saffron from cashmere is supposed to be the best. Like for chefs, that's what they want. There are uh, businesses in Iran taking their saffron there and saying it's cashmere saffron on their packaging. Okay. So if I'm a chef and I want to make sure that it's coming exactly cashmere, yeah. if you have a farmer, a supply chain with the geotagging at every point, I know it's really from there. So full traceability. And this whole traceability movement is happening more and more, right? Yeah. And it has to do with like these regulations coming in from the EU and America for a start and hopefully here. Yeah. Now, um, aside from that, uh, the farmer doesn't have to get paid out in crypto, okay? All these transactions can be locked into blockchain, and when the farmer gets paid out, they can get paid out in their local currency. Okay. Right, so people get confused, confused. and scared, and they're like, oh, well, like, crypto, crypto. I'm like, no, <laughs> you can use the technology you don't need just to like you can use HTML for a website, yeah. and, and all of these great things can happen, okay? okay. Now, the other piece is that you can use blockchain combined with satellite AI to show that carbon is real in the ground in real time. You don't need to see every second that your carbon's real. Yeah. But you can, with a combination of satellite and blockchain technology um, and this geotagging concept, you can read the land for the carbon once a week twice a month, whatever. You could do it once a month. This is massive. So is that what like carbon credit is called? Because um, you mentioned that before. Is Yeah, so so you can use the, you get like a baseline read of the land okay. with the satellite and you get soil testing done, right? You, yeah. you have someone physically go and test the soil. Yeah. And there's a lot of soil testing data out there, especially for Africa, which mm. is really cool. So... Yeah, what happens is you get that baseline and then you keep you can keep reading the land like like I said every week, every month, yeah. whatever interval people decide on and you can see it's still there. So the biggest challenge with the carbon markets since the start like 30 years ago, mm. no one knows if the carbon is real. It's not a regulated market. Okay. <laughs> voluntary carbon is really not regulated and they're trying but they're you know it's it's Doesn't. it's a massive challenge and it's it's you know it's kind of like the crypto world like <laughs> you have to know what you're getting into you have to really understand how to know if something's real and the biggest players in the carbon world who are supposed to be taking care of this issue have not been doing the best job of, as we've seen in the media mm. over like the past 18 months. Yes. Right. So yeah, with that, that combination of these technologies, you can use AI as a part of this. Uh, you can prove that carbon is in the ground and that has not been accomplished in the past. Yeah. That's fascinating. And it's, um, it's, it's a threat to the industry. Uh, it, it's, it's threatening because I'll just show a lot the of true people, colors, yeah. And businesses have made money off of lies, okay? Ooh, okay. And the other piece is that over the years, like, you have this um, challenge uh, where companies would go to people, especially in the global south, 
Mm -hmm. where that's like the front lines of the climate crisis Mm -hmm. and the food crisis. Not only can you show if the carbon's real, but you can show if the farmers or the indigenous tribes were paid or not. A lot of times, like these companies have gone to these people and these communities that have nothing. They say, hey, we want to take your carbon. We'll pay you. Here's a contract. We'll be back in a year or three. And they never show up. And I know, I don't know the numbers, but this has happened. People mm-hmm. have made millions off of convincing people in the Sporting rainforest. Them. Yeah. Like, hey, we're going to help you. I was, I was at um, I was at Climate Week mm. in New York last September. A woman came up from Brazil, and uh, she got up in the middle of this room of American investors and said, yeah. um, there's a company that's been mentioned in all of the big tech press over the past year and did a huge raise. And we were working for this company that shall rename Nameless. Yeah. And um, the funds were supposed to get to us and to prepare us with um, all these different things for like taking care of car- a carbon project in the Brazilian rainforest, but also including like equipment for um, fire prevention and training if, if fire happens, right? Mm. And she said, um, the money never really got to us. They, they threw us peanuts. Oh, wow. Way less than they're supposed to. And then um, fires ripped through the region and where our carbon project was located. And we didn't have the tools or the training that they promised us. Oh, my God. Okay. This is still happening. So, so yeah, this whole thing about traceability, this can be, you know, blockchain isn't the answer for everything. Neither is AI. But you can solve a lot of issues yeah. with transparency. How open do you think they are? Because you said it is a threat to them that now you can't see if carbon is real. So do you think that governments or regulations are more open to using this? Do you see maybe in the future? Or do you think they're just going to still stay away because it's almost like a threat and they don't want like people to really know what's going on in the industry? I think governments are very open to it. I think mm-hmm. a lot of governments are, yeah, especially the ones that see the consequences, yeah, in their backyard, yeah, right. Um, you know, America's another story, <laughs> uh, but I think this government here in the UAE is is way more open. Um, there's that challenge of education. Mm. They don't fully understand that this is possible. I mean, honestly. That carbon pilot that I advised yeah. um, for Brazil, did I, I'm sorry if I didn't talk about it enough, but <laughs> I got to advise like pretty much the world's first case study of this combination of blockchain and AI and soil sampling okay. to benefit and pay smallholder farmers in Brazil, right? So the problem is, one, we're in the early days and a lot of people don't even know it's possible. Mm. Two, there aren't enough companies in the industry that are actually doing this. Like we need more manpower. We have enough people that understand it, but we need more manpower. Um, we need more funding. So it, it needs to needs to rapidly scale. Okay. And what about the the education part or the openness for the smallholder farmers to take in these technologies? Do you also provide like, I don't know, education to them before they use or how do you look for them and how do you like approach them um so 
India is an epicenter for agritech right now. Mm. India is a great place to reach people quickly. Like there's a reason they call it the great find. Yeah. <laughs> it's really easy to network and find the right people. And uh, farmers are desperate. Like they're feeling it. Um, mm. Farmer suicide is very high in India. Exactly. Right. Okay. Farmer suicide is a whole other thing, but it is global between America, Europe, India. It's, it's all over and it's going to continue with what's happening. Um, so, yeah, I guess um, they are experiencing uh, desperation and there are a lot of politics. So when you go to farmers and you find like a collective, for example, this works really well with collectives where they've come mm. together. The farmers collective that I mentioned has yeah. 20,000 farmers. They all have to come through like one hub and bring their food in and register it and then it gets trucked out some of it gets shipped to europe you know mm. uh but pretty much once you have the technology built mm. these farmers were getting trained by locals within three to five days at the most and that's okay. it so it's high tech it's totally advanced sounds super complicated but once you have it Easy to adapt. It's as easy as training somebody how to use Kareem. Okay. Pretty so one simple. of the problems is, like, people have, oh, this is crazy technology. It's going to take so long. No, not yeah. really. And, like, you know what? Everything's been built now, pretty much. Most things have been built. You know, uh, another piece to this is uh, with supply chains and, and supporting the Global South, it's uh, going out to these collectives and making sure that they get hooked into the, the global market. Okay. Right. You, yeah. you need the infrastructure um, and honest people in the middle to make sure that a collective in Uganda can get its produce to the UAE, for example. Mm. The biggest challenge in all that is that you have these middlemen who have been around for ages – making a lot of money, like blowing the price of food up. And they're not going to tell you how much they're making at okay. the end of the day. Between like port to port and then getting to like restaurants or the supermarket here, yeah. you, you, there's, there's a hole. So that's why blockchain is a threat because it, it will take their profits. Okay. But that's that's a big part of why the farmers are suffering. It's a big part why their profits with these case studies went up 700 to 900% because mm. they cut out the middlemen. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I know we're speaking about a lot of the challenges, but I want to shed light on more of like the opportunities and the positivities that are maybe um, – been coming up for the past few years or you hope to see in the next few years? I'm, again, like, I can't say it enough. Like, I'm really excited to see what's happening here. And, and even within Saudi, there's okay. a lot of positivity coming from this region right now. I truly believe the greatest volume of investment for impact, supply chain, food security, climate, that it's coming from this region right now. Okay. Uh, with the little that I've seen. And, you know, I'm not behind every closed door, but yeah. I understand some of the deals that have been happening here and is very exciting. 
that yeah. that gives me a lot of hope. I'm really excited to be here. I'm super grateful. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing like how it evolves here over the next five to 10 years. Um, so that's really exciting. And I, I really wish more people outside of the Middle East could understand what's happening here right now. And um, even with my uh, criticism of uh, COP28, which is going to happen for every COP because I'm critical of the industry, yeah. right? Um, I was so happy to see uh, a lot of Westerners, a lot of Americans come here and be completely surprised, right? Mm -hmm. I've been coming to this region for the past 20 years of my life. Like, I, I love this part of the world for yeah. the things that people don't understand outside of this region. And to see Americans come here for the first time, they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> I, what, what did I miss? Yeah. Like, yeah, welcome. And you're like, it's one of the best kept secrets in the world. <laughs> it's not fully a secret, but yeah, most Americans don't. For example, that's just one country that I'm from, right? Yeah. They don't understand what's happening here. Like, they don't understand like why I stay here, why I'm inspired. Yeah. So, so yeah, I was I was really happy to see that, and I think that will be revealed globally more and more over the years to come. Um, what I see. In Africa, what I'm excited about for Africa is that there's a lot of innovation for agritech um, coming out of places like Kenya. I was just in Morocco last September. They've got a big agricultural university there now um, that has been operating for like three, four years. And, and you have this whole wave of like youth that's like, really taking this in Africa mm -hmm. and, and becoming experts that you don't get to hear about, unfortunately. Yeah. But it's happening. And I really believe that a lot of the solutions to these greater challenges are coming from Africa now and will continue to. They will grow. It's just not everybody's getting to hear about it. But I hope that I can use my platform to share the stories of those leaders so awesome i'm just going to switch gears for a second and uh, we have this thing for this initiative called the fem forward and march is coming soon i just wanted to um, ask you as a woman pioneering in the field of climate technology and sustainability what unique perspectives or challenges do you encounter or have you encountered? And what advice would you offer to other women seeking to make an impact in this place? <laughs> Just like you. Yeah, uh, it's definitely challenging to be a woman working in this field of innovation. Mm -hmm. For me, uh, the biggest challenge is making sure that women leaders um, actually get the funding and the support that they need. And once they get the support and they're into their journey, right, um, it's not about just the financial support. Mm. It's about, like, the mental, like, spiritual, communal support. It's hard to be a woman working in these industries, right? And it's yeah. many industries, like they're very male dominated. Like this is the world that we live in. But um, it's been so hard for me on my own journey. I, I work with mostly men. I work with some really great yeah. men who, <laughs> who believe in me. Okay. But along the way, like I've had to deal with things like 
sexual harassment in the workplace. I've had to deal with uh, men talking down to me and just assuming that I don't know anything about finance or business because of the body that I was born into. And it's really hard because um, when you don't have a lot of people believing in you, you have to really go to yourself yeah. and becoming extremely thick and strong, like thick-skinned, yeah. right? But having that community of women who have been through it is is so important, and it's something I wish I had more of, but it's okay. It's working out for me. Yeah. Um, but I think it's like, you know, find your, find your women for sure. Find your tribe, which is, you know, will include good men. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's also that, you have to learn that like this life is short and you can't let people get in your way. Um, you know, and if there are people in your world that don't serve you, no matter if they're a man or a woman, you you have to really learn how to sift through the weeds. Okay. Right. Doesn't mean that everybody's perfect because no one is, but like it's learning how, how to say no, when to say no. Right. And, and we have grown up in this world like no matter what country you're mm-hmm. from, where like girls are automatically programmed that we don't know what to do with money. We don't know how to invest. We don't know how to be entrepreneurs. That's yeah. not true. Definitely not true. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a reprogramming that needs to happen on a global scale and it's starting. And that's why we're seeing all these institutions crumbling and a rearranging of, of the guards because like the feminine Yeah is coming right. in now, right? But yeah. it's 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 causing a wave. It's, yeah. it's causing disruption, which which is good. This time is very scary, but it's also very exciting because of that. So look at this country. Like I heard that, I think it's like what fifty percent of startups now are women founders. I could be wrong, but I heard some amazing numbers. Like wow, wow. uh huh. And there are a lot of women entrepreneurs getting funding now in Saudi to numbers I can't quote off the top of my head right now. But when I when I heard that too, it's like, like it's not happening anywhere else. Go. <laughs> yeah. That's very powerful. Well thanks for sharing that. Um this is just the last question and we're wrapping up the episode, but it was really lovely having you here, Erin. Thank you. Um, you're joining us at the Gulf Food Inspire conference uh in February. So can you just tell us a little bit more about your panel session and what can we expect and what are you excited for at Golf Food? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the panel that I'm a part of uh, will be talking about technology, innovation, financial innovation for supply chains um, and, you know, addressing the uh, food crisis, right? Yeah. And, um, addressing food security. Yes. And I'm super excited. Like I met some of my fellow panelists yesterday and they're real experts. And (laughs) it's funny because like I've been on a lot of panels and people are happy to hear these stories, but I can see in their eyes that they're like, I don't know what this is like. You know, it sounds really great, but I still don't know what she's talking about. And um, when I met these two women panelists yesterday, Mm. um, both of them knew what I was talking about. It's like, oh, God. Thank God. And it's like, um, such a relief. I've never been so excited for a panel before because I'm like, oh, yeah, they get me. This is going to be great. And um, yeah, I'm just excited to be at this conference and meet people from all around the world. 
And, you know, like anytime I go to a conference like this, like I regain my inspiration, you yes. know, because you, you can't hold it every day. Like yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's hard to be happening. an innovator. So yeah. like getting out to these types of conferences, it's really great. And the thing about um, the difference for me, like COP28 was great, but like because of the media attention for climate, I, I I know people in companies getting in Time Magazine now, Rolling Stone, like all these different mm. places for climate. Like it's becoming too Hollywood for me. <laughs> I'm like, um, we're not there with the supply chains and food security yeah. yet. And that's nice in a way because I, I don't think I'm going to see the ego at this <laughs> conference. You don't have Rolling Stone showing up to report about these yeah. things. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're, we're so excited to have you on stage in February. Just I think there's just, I think, nine days now left. So uh, pretty soon. Well, thank you so much for coming on the Less True podcast, Erin. It's really, really lovely having you and getting all the insights from you in all the innovation, technology, supply chain, the good and the bad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and, and the conversation here. Uh, I just want to put it out there that if you're a part of a corporation, um, someone who's looking to invest, um, if anything today uh, was relevant and it's ringing some bells and you want to learn more, um, I'm always happy to help um, just with a conversation, with an intro call. Um, you know, I do advisory for implementing these technologies and I also support investors who want to make a difference with their money while still making a profit. Um, so any of these things, even if you're a woman who just needs some help because <laughs> you're feeling alone out there um, on, on the edge as a, a trailblazer in, in, in this world, like please contact me through LinkedIn. No problem. Um, I love having calls with people. And if you live in Dubai, I'm happy to have a coffee.